The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, June the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Is Ireland Neutral? Many Myths of Irish Neutrality is the title of a new book from my Irish Times colleague, uh, the Irish Times' crime and security correspondent, Conor Gallagher. You're very welcome. Thanks very much, Hugh. I suppose the question is in the book, uh, is Ireland Neutral? Yes or no? Didn't get the podcast over quickly? Uh, kind of. Uh, sort of, later. isn't it? That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's actually a much more complicated story than I thought it would be. And maybe maybe we actually, you know, started where, where you started with somebody who I'd never heard of, a chap called Major General J.J. Ginger O'Connell and his trip to Paris in 1922. Yeah, it's one of the, the, the fascinating little nuggets I, I dug up while researching the book. Ginger uh, O'Connell was one of the, the most senior figures in the newly born National Army. Um, and was obviously a major figure in the War of Independence fighting on the IRA side. Uh, so this is just a, about a month after um, that fateful uh, day in London when they signed the treaty, uh, Collins and, and, and the rest of the party signed the treaty before the Civil War had broken out, before things had gotten really, really bad here. And uh, O'Connell uh, went, to, went to Paris where he visited uh, a very senior figure in the um, French uh, military intelligence and proposed to them kind of a bilateral military relationship where uh, the French would train Irish troops and they could come over to Ireland and train troops and the implication was they could also do a little bit of intelligence work. And then um, his French counterpart said, thanks, maybe we'll look into it, you know, don't call us, we'll call you kind of thing. And and that was that, but not to be the third, uh, Ginger came back a little while later with a much more expansive proposal that uh, the uh, uh, Ireland and France would actually enter into a military alliance um, ahead of this expected future war against, uh, against Britain. And this uh, is obviously only three years or so after the end of the First World War, so Britain and France are still pretty closely aligned. They are, you know, we think of France and Britain today as kind of not being, you know, uh, the best of friends. But at that time in history, they were the best of friends and they fully envisaged being allies into the future. Um, that's not to say that uh, uh, Ginger O'Connell was rejected out of hand. Um, the French intelligence gave his his uh, his proposal to, uh, to, to someone to look over and peruse and they came back and said, you know, uh, O'Connell's a, a good officer and he's, a, you know, an honest man, but... I think we should leave this one and that 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 idea died died on the vine and um unsurprisingly but I suppose I just started off the book with it because it illustrates that this idea of virus neutrality even at the, the very earliest days of the state has always been an incredibly flexible concept. So right from the very start, it's been pragmatic, it's been about real politic, even though it's been the subject of, you know, statements from time to time that it's at the core of what it means to be a, to be a free Irish state. I suppose mm. to go back, I mean, even before the foundation of the state, the kind of the phrase, neither we serve neither king nor kaiser, sort of feeds into that sense of what Irish neutrality is about and probably feeds into it being a lot of the time being about loosening the bonds with the United 
United Kingdom. Yeah, and that that phrase, I, we serve neither king nor Kaiser, which was sung, I think, on Liberty Hall in the run-up to, 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 to 1916 during World War I in the face of conscription being brought in. Um, and yeah, it's the perfect slogan for a, for a neutral or a wannabe neutral nation. But it's happened at the same time as some of the Republican leaders or the, the central figures involved in preparations for 1916 Rising are actually talking about an alliance with Germany to, to kick out the Brits. And not just an alliance with Germany. There's a couple like Plunkett um, and, and Casement to a lesser extent who are talking about having a German prince rule Ireland as this kind of republican monarchy. This is one of the Kaiser's sons. Yeah, uh, Prince uh, Joachim, um, who who met a very uh, tragic end uh, in, in the war. He died in 1920 as a kind of a broken figure. But this was the idea of some of these guys, quite a pretty naive idea that they discussed actually while the bullets were ringing around them in the GPO in 1916, that Patrick Pierce would serve as prime minister under this figurehead of uh, Prince Joachim. So this idea of us being neutral was really, even before that, yeah, a very, very malleable bit. I suppose the question, of course, is I mean, then and now, 100 years later, what does neutrality actually mean? It means, uh, I think probably our colleague Pat Lee, he put it, probably best in, uh, uh, not to take the attention off me and my book but of course not God forbid he put it best. the last thing we want is mentions of Patley year around these <laughs> that neutrality is whatever the government of the day uh, it means whatever the government of the day wants it to mean yeah. so and, and so Eamon de Valera at the eve of World War 2 which is basically where our modern conception of Irish neutrality got started it meant you know we would stay out of the war to the extent that we would not be a belligerent in the war, but we would uh, basically give every other type of assistance we could to the Allies uh, throughout the war. Charlie Hawhey, there's a chapter in the book, you know, Charlie Hawhey employing neutrality in a particularly cynical way, shocking, I know, uh, uh, during the Falklands War. So, you know, just a few months before the Falklands, Hawhey uh, was proposing a bilateral defence alliance with Thatcher, and this was uh, his, uh, his way of uh, ending partition and maybe assuring Northern Unionists, you know, that they'd be safe in a, in a in the Irish Republic. Thatcher told them in so many words, if you want a defence alliance, you can join NATO. Uh, oh, he was obviously annoyed by that, and he was really annoyed as well that he'd been sidelined in the, the uh, efforts to end the hunger strikes. Um, so uh, when the Falklands War broke out, uh, he withdrew Ireland from European sanctions against Argentina uh, on the basis that we are neutral and we don't get involved in sanctions, which is just wrong. We do get involved in sanctions. We did before and we have done uh, ever since and that's never been a part of even our ferry. So it was really an expression of a particularly low point in Anglo-Irish relations really was yeah, what was going and, on there. and the aftermath was huge. Uh, the aftermath, uh, I think we forget today that uh, there was huge anger at uh, Irish uh, people in Britain at the time. I think the Sun had a, a stab in the back headline about the Irish. A Guinness wrote to the Department of Foreign Affairs or the Taoiseach and said, we're going to have to downplay our Irishness because the Irishness is so tainted in Britain. Um, just a, another kind of fascinating incident I came across. So just to, just to push a little bit more than taking it out, out of Ireland or away from Ireland for a moment, what does neutrality mean? I think people think of countries which have been legally neutral, as we understand it, for a very long time. Switzerland is the classic example. Yeah, I, I, it just goes to show how even how difficult it is to find neutrality. I mean, neutrality in, in, in the sense of international law only applies during a war. Now, obviously, uh, in, in common parlance, it's taken on a much wider uh, meaning. And Switzerland uh, is probably is one of the few uh, countries that 
you know, wear its neutrality on its sleeve. It's part of their national identity. Um, but even they have uh, had to, uh, struggled with how uh, being a pure neutral. And, you know, I think my conclusion in the book is that there's no such thing as a pure neutral, unless you're this weird hermit kingdom um, who has no ties with anyone. You know, I don't even think North Korea would qualify as a, as a pure neutral. Uh, not least because they keep launching missiles over the <laughs> over Japan, but anyway, um, so Switzerland, ha, just like Ireland in World War Two, uh, had a certain consideration for one of the belligerents. This time it was the the Germans and the Nazis, for geographical reasons. They were supplying, uh, well, they were buying all the gold and storing all the gold from the Nazis, as as is well known. They were supplying arms to the, to the Nazi war machine, and uh, most shamefully, they were uh, co- cooperating in some ways with the repression of the. Uh, of the the Jewish population, both in Switzerland and in Germany. Uh, After the war, they developed very close ties to NATO, much closer ties than we did. Uh, NATO trained their troops. Uh, They were also part of this uh, very murky, uh, um, spooky organisation called uh, P-26, I think, which which was this stay-behind army. Uh, so if the Soviets uh, launched a land invasion of Western Europe, uh, Switzerland and several other uh, European countries had a, a stay-behind army that would uh, uh, stay behind the lines and carry out guerrilla actions and sabotage hmm. actions in concert with other uh, NATO countries. Um, so, you know, Swiss neutrality, just like Irish neutrality, is not as cracked up to be. And to, and to what extent then, as well as that, is neutrality not necessarily in the gift of the government of the sovereign state itself, which is claiming the neutrality, but exists on the basis of acceptance by its neighbours, particularly if you're on a European landmass. You think of somewhere like Belgium, its neutrality didn't last long when the German tanks came through. Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, this is the idea of uh, being neutral and neutralised as well. And you can argue Switzerland was neutralised because it sought neutrality, but uh, the powers at the time after the Napoleonic Wars, after Napoleon was finally uh, uh, sent away, were happy to give Switzerland neutrality because it would act as a buffer between France and uh, uh, Austria, the Habsburgs, basically. You know, so any future wars would be less likely because they'd have to go through Switzerland. Just so happens, unlike poor old Belgium, Switzerland has been able to defend its neutrality uh, during World War Helps World not War. being flat. Helps not being flat, lots of mountains, and it helps the fact that you, uh, you're minding everyone's gold as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then back to Ireland, because obviously in the in the early days, and you've mentioned that we'll come back to the Second World War, actually, but in the early days of the, of the Free State and then under de Valera, the Anglo, you know, the Anglo-Irish Treaty um, left a lot of stuff unsatisfactorily resolved as far as, you know, both sides in the Civil War were concerned. And one of the most obvious parts of that, um, as well as the sort of dominion status of the state and the fact that it didn't seem to have full control over its own foreign affairs and, and defences, which are really what neutrality is all about, ultimately, in the end. There were also treaty ports and they were, the, the United Kingdom had control of three ports right up until an agreement in 1938, so just barely before the war, to withdraw. Yeah, and even more than that, and this is often overlooked, they had the right to take over any other ports as they saw fit at times of heightened tensions. I think the the exact word of the the treaty was heightened tensions with uh, another power. And, you know, there's rarely a time when Britain didn't and doesn't have heightened tensions with another power. So not only did they have control of the treaty ports, which, you know, had hundreds of troops in them, um, but they also had the right, in theory, to take over any other port they wanted um, or any other airfield or any other facility like that. It's Um, interesting that, uh, I mean, obviously they didn't know for sure, or maybe they did, that the war was, you know, that war was coming in 1938. A lot of people did think that that was going to happen, but that they felt 
comfortable enough in their own defensive dispositions to uh, to let go of those rights at at that point. It kind of says something about the way in which perhaps the United Kingdom has viewed neutral or sovereign independent Ireland since since the 1920s that they don't necessarily have to have boots on the ground. Mm, yeah, and it was also the Admiralty uh, were given the, the government advice saying that, you know, modern warfare means, uh, modern warfare as it was then, means that these ports weren't nearly as important as they were during World War One when uh, the British viewed them as vital as keeping the sea lanes open and, and, and basically vital and ensuring its populace doesn't starve. Um, longer range ships, longer range aircraft meant that the job could be done from um, you know, from the British mainland or crucially, and as it was, Northern Ireland, because mm. you know, they did Northern Ireland wasn't a thing during World War One. It was a thing during World War Two. Uh, a very important thing, very important, very, very important yeah. for the, for a war yeah. effort. You know, uh, the bases there in Northern Ireland were used as for sub hunters and out in the Atlantic, and they could do the job almost as well from there as they could say if they still retained uh, Loch Swilly in Northern Donegal or Bearhaven or or, or a, a cove um, in, in in Cork, um, and also they still got a huge amount of cooperation mm. uh, to be able to fly over the Republic so they didn't have to take the long way round to get out into the Atlantic and hunt for subs. So it seems to me, and correct me uh, if, I, if I'm wrong, that the events of the Second World War in a way set the template for what we now understand to be Irish neutrality in that it, it wasn't necessary or didn't seem to be necessary for any of the combatants to feel that they needed to actually garrison the country or invade the country in any way. But questions such as um, access to airspace, access to useful intelligence data, that's where, you know, that's where the, the business end of the stuff was at. Yeah, and I suppose it's one of the great what-ifs of uh, history as, say, de Valera decided... We were going to be purely neutral in World War Two. We were not going to repatriate Allied airmen who crashed here. We were not going to let them fly over uh, the Donegal Corridor, etc., uh, etc. Et Would Churchill have invaded? Um, I've no idea. You know, there was certainly times when he really wanted uh, to invade, and he um, tasked Montgomery, uh, you know, the, the 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 great field marshal, as he'd later become with doing up a plan of how they would invade Ireland. Would the Germans have invaded? Uh, the people I spoke to for the book said much less likely. Um, it would have required a massive force. And what often gets forgotten at the time is uh, Irish, uh, the Irish army at the start of the war was in really bad shape, but it did build up and you did have a huge force. You had uh, several divisions uh, in Ireland. You, um, they did have arms. They didn't have many, but they would have been able to put up a fight. So it probably wouldn't have been worth the Germans' time trying to invade Ireland or trying to even get uh, to Ireland. Um, so, but it's 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 an interesting thought experiment, and thankfully, though, uh, something that 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 never became anything more than that. But you're right in saying that that's when the idea of Ireland reputation as a neutral country first the seeds were planted, I suppose. But after the war, kind of it went out the window again and no one really talked about Ireland as a neutral country, uh, either in the Dáil or in the, the public sphere. Like if you search the Irish Times archive or you search the Oireachtas Debates archive, neutrality is very, very rarely mentioned. And that's the case right up until about the 70s. Although issues do arise, such as, you know, whether or not Ireland might join NATO. And, and very often, and, and include the Second World War in this, and then when, when NATO was set up in the late 1940s, that question is very often closely tied with, with the question of partition. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so this was... Uh, I came across a document. It's a 1996 white paper on uh, foreign, uh, what Ireland's foreign affairs position should be. And in its summary, it says, we didn't join NATO because of our military neutrality, which is just uh, flat out wrong. 
Um, the reason we didn't join NATO was because of a gambit that the inter-party government launched, which which just uh, went wrong. So uh, the Brits approached a uh, member of the Irish government very quietly and said, listen, we're trying to get this thing off the ground, uh, this idea of a collective defence pact, an attack on one is an attack on everyone. Would you be interested in coming on board as a, a founding member? And uh, Sean McBride, who was the Minister for External Affairs at the time, had this idea. It was like, well, they really need us. We're strategically vital uh, to uh, any kind of NATO, uh, North Atlantic alliance. Um, so surely they'll give us the six counties back. Uh, um, Seems if, a little naive. It was a little naive and it would prove to be very naive for several reasons. So um, McBride's idea was the Brits... Uh, you know, you had a new Labour government who were more ambivalent about Northern Ireland. You know, Churchill was gone. And this whole idea of loyal, steadfast unionists didn't have the same uh, traction in the Labour government. Um, and he also thought that uh, even if the Brits were reluctant, the Americans would, would force them into it because America was very much the senior partner in the relationship. Yeah, and this stage. is where, I mean, obviously everything changes during the Second World War and you go into the Second World War and it's about are we, are we going to join the war alongside the United Kingdom? Mm. You come out the other side and it's about the United States is, yeah. is increasingly what it's all about. They're, they're the hegemony-like. But then we had completely overestimated our, our strategic value. Um, and that's because of, again, advances in technology and long-range bombers, submarines or whatever. That could, and the fact, again, they still had Northern Ireland, so they still had a good chunk of Ireland in NATO. So they just didn't need us that much. Uh, so, and also but, presumably the Americans, uh, uh, the Americans weren't particularly keen to put pressure on the United Kingdom because that was a sort of the implication of this, wasn't it? That absolutely. the Americans were prepared to were prepared to make Britain pay a price for Ireland joining NATO, and that, that wasn't really a very rational calculation. No, and and as well, uh, the American State Department at the time and for the next several decades was dominated by this. Uh, a group of very waspish, very Anglophile uh, people who couldn't give two hoots about Ireland and actually really, really resented Ireland's neutrality in the war, even mm. if it was a very partial neutrality. So McBride's plan went nowhere. We got kind of a semi-official invitation to take part. We sent back a, a memo saying, we'd love to, we really like the idea of fighting the communists together, but, you know, that's the situation in the North needs to be resolved. And they hoped that would be the start of a conversation. In fact, it was the end of a conversation. And there's one American diplomat uh, describing it years later saying, we just said, in effect, nice knowing you. And that was that. Uh, you know, the idea was Ireland and NATO, be nice to have, no means essential. And there but, was some attempt to put some pressure on through the Catholic Church in Ireland. That's right. Yeah, in the early stages yeah. of this, there was kind of a uh, uh, this idea that, OK, there's, you know, this government is, is you know, it's such a Catholic country. Uh, and we have uh, John Charles McQuaid, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, was at the height of his power then. Let's, and he was in favour of joining the alliance. Some, do, uh, someone in the American side had a word in McQuaid's ear. McQuaid tried to persuade McBride, two were friends, to uh, drop your demand for partition to end and just join the alliance. And uh, although McBride was a staunch Catholic, he told McQuaid, you know, keep your nose out of it. So that avenue was was shut off. And with that being shut off, the Americans kind of dropped the whole endeavour. And the Americans had been warned, actually, by Britain that the Irish might try this gambit as well. So they were well briefed going into it. So poor old McBride's uh, plan kind of died on the vine. 
One of the one of the things I, I wonder about that is one of the things that's in the book that I didn't know and I probably should have known was that Ireland was a recipient of martial aid for some years immediately after the Second World War, and then that martial aid, that money which was so important to the regeneration of Europe after after the war, uh, that money stopped. Is that linked to the it is NATO yeah business? yeah so uh, the Congress introduced a bill, and this was a bill to kind of get countries to join. Uh, NATO, uh, uh, they introduced a bill tying continued martial aid to uh, uh, joining the alliance. And Ireland said, uh, you know, and I suppose it is a demonstration of some sort of independent thinking. They said, no, we're not going to do that. So the, we, we, we stopped getting martial aid. Although by that time, we'd already gotten, I think, the vast majority of funds okay. that we were going to get. So it wasn't that big of a loss at the time. So then as we move into the, the, the further into the post-war period, which is a time of not great economic success in Ireland, you have inter-party governments, you have de Valera coming in and coming out, then Lamas coming in at the, at, at the start of the 1960s. There is um, a real engagement with the United Nations, which follows up on, I mean, the, the, the young Irish state had been very involved in the League of Nations before the, the, the Second World War. And Ireland has quite a presence and has quite a voice at the UN over that period. Frank Aiken is a, is a big figure in, in this part of the story. Yeah, so, you know, after we joined, and, and, and uh, I think we were rejected four times before that, and it was only in the 50s that we were actually allowed to uh, join when the Soviets dropped their objection to us. And again, their objection... Uh, what they said was because of our neutrality in World War Two. In fact, it was a bit more complicated. Uh, it was geopolitical games with the Americans. They, they knew we'd be an American ally, so they didn't want mm. to admit another person to the American camp, basically. Uh, and when we did get in, and, and Frank Aiken, you know, former chief of staff of the IRA, uh, now minister for external affairs, set... Uh, put a huge emphasis on UN membership. And this was kind of the golden age of Ireland at the UN when we carved out an independent voice um, and a well-earned independent voice and promoted things like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Aiken and his team were vital in. And this is a really novel uh, idea that uh, it recognises that there are countries in the world with, with nuclear weapons but it's trying to stop the spread of it. You know, so it's getting people to accept, okay, my neighbour has a nuclear weapon. I'm not going to go down that road of trying to get one. So we're going to stop this race before it starts. And, you know, obviously since then it's had mixed success, but it was a huge deal at the time. And, it, you know, it probably did reduce the amount of, or, you know, stop the amount of nuclear weapons in the world getting uh, bigger. So is it fair to say that Ireland, you know, terrible phrase, but punched above its weight on the world stage yeah, at that point in terms definitely. of its influence. I think we saw a niche. We saw a, a gap between the two powers. Uh, um, we were able to marshal the smaller states um, and uh, definitely punched above its weight. And it's kind of recognised by the fact that we were uh, we were the first people to, we were allowed to be the first people to sign the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But again, it's two sides to every story. If, if you kind of look at the figures and Patrick Keating, who's kind of a one of the few academics in Ireland who's really studied uh, neutrality over the decades, he found that Ireland voted with the US at the UN level far more uh, than most other countries, including many other NATO countries. Uh, so while we did have an independent voice in some respects, in other respects we were solidly in the Western camp. And because the there was an camp. attempt at the time, because this is the height of the Cold War we're talking about now, to have a sort of a third way, to have a, non, a, a pact between non-aligned nations, mm. many of them in the developing world, some, you know, not aligned with either the Russians or, or the Americans. 
and Ireland kind of stayed away from that. We did, yeah. We had no interest yeah. in it. We yeah. had absolutely no interest in it. So this was uh, a, a group that was neither in uh, NATO or the Warsaw Pact countries. Um, and it was, yeah, kind of in the global south mainly, but also several countries in uh, in Europe. and uh, Yugoslavia would have been involved with it. Yeah, Yugoslavia yeah. had observer mm. status. Um, Portugal had observer status, oddly enough, even though uh, that was in NATO. Um, Ireland never asked uh, to join, never even you know, applied for observer status or went to any of the meetings in an observer role. Uh, led to the great quote by the uh, uh, Soviet uh, foreign minister to Gareth Fitzgerald when he said, I don't understand that Ireland, Ireland, you're you're non-aligned, but you're also non-aligned with the non-aligned. Um, I've butchered it slightly, but it's in the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we did stay away from what seemed like it would be the perfect home for a neutral country trying to trying to uh, act as a mediator between, uh, you know, these, these two um, massive powers. And there's other limitations on our on our ability to do that. And it's a reason why Switzerland has been able to do it a lot more. Or say why uh, Norway, a NATO member, uh, since the start has been able to do it a lot more. You know, back then we were a very poor country on the periphery of Europe. We didn't have the money to host international institutions like UN offices or, you know, the uh, International Criminal Court or anything like that. We didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have the diplomatic footprint. And even in more recent times, we don't have as... Uh, impartial uh, reputation as we like to think we have. So we have played a very, pretty limited role in the Israeli-Palestine conflict, for example, because the Israelis see us as, as pro-Palestine. And that's why, you know, the Oslo Accords obviously took place in Oslo uh, with, the, with the push from the Norwegians because they don't have that reputation. And we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. Just to remind you that you'll have to pay hard cash to buy Connor's book, but you can read Oz Journalism in the Irish Times on a regular basis. Just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We're back after this. Andrew, welcome back. I'm talking to Conor Gallagher about his book, Is Ireland Neutral? We were just talking about the, the situation with Frank Aiken and the non-aligned movement of which Ireland was not aligned to in the, in, in the 1960s in particular. You kind of hear a phrase that Ireland is is militarily neutral, but it's not neutral is something that seems to be bandied around in in that period. And just before the break, from what you were saying, the implication is that Ireland was militarily neutral because it didn't have a military worth speaking of. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly the case, or one of the, the factors during uh, World War Two. The kind of military neutral thing only has only risen in recent decades, that kind of terminology. Um, the other term, which is even more vague, is uh, traditional neutrality. Um, and I, I yeah, What does that mean? That sounds I've like something, no something you get in a restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've absolutely no idea what that means, but I think it just means that, yeah, we're kind of neutral when it suits us. Um, but the, 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 the link between the defence forces and our lack of military uh, power Power and neutrality is really interesting um, because in Ireland, uniquely it seems, at some point along the way, the idea of being neutral and not spending money on defence and not really thinking about defence too much became intertwined. And I say that's unique because you look at other countries like Switzerland, to go back to, to Switzerland, or say Singapore, to pick a, someone on the, uh, the other side of the world, they would describe themselves as neutral, but they have massive militaries for their size of population. You know, Switzerland is conscription. Uh, it has... Uh, F-35 bombers Um, and that's in recognition of the idea that if you want to be neutral in international law you have to be able to defend that neutrality So is that a unique 
internationally. I mean, there are countries, isn't there? I think Costa Rica doesn't have an army. I mean, not every, you don't have to have an army to be a country. True. Or do Costa Rica you? doesn't have an army. It abolished its army a couple of decades ago. It has kind of a gendarmerie kind of police force. Uh, but Costa Rica has a defense alliance with the US, so it's not neutral. Um, so if someone was to attack Costa Rica, the Americans would be would be there. Um, so uh, are we, if not unique, are we really highly unusual in the, the very small amount of money we, we, we devote to our own defense? Absolutely. So it's the lowest... Um, uh, uh, per capita investment in in Europe by uh, by far it's zero point two I think was the last time I checked and even with the government's recent commitments to increase that by fifty percent will still be uh, comfortably at the bottom of of the table and now some might say to that well you know it just makes sense because what's the point in getting I don't know you know twenty jet fighters that'd be shot down in the first three hours of a conflict with a major power anyway I think there's that's a reasonable point. Um, so there's two things. Well, one of the reasons why you want to have some kind of air power or a credible military is we're never going to be able to re- repel an invasion, say, if from the Russians, Americans, French, basically anyone, maybe Montenegro or someone, I don't know. But it's about deterrence. It's about, you know, one of the reasons Germany didn't invade during World War II, one of the many reasons it has to be said, was because we had, we would have, we would have made them pay for it. Um, and it's also about having an expeditionary capacity. So being able to go and take part in peacekeeping missions as we do, but also these new increasingly complex uh, missions where you're trying to stop problems before they get started. So, you know, we are. I was down in Cork yesterday meeting the crew of the William Butler Yates, and they're going to take part in Operation Irene. Um, this is an EU operation um, attempting to stop arms being smuggled into Libya um, and reigniting the civil war there. And that's, you know, it's a nice photo op. It's good training for the crew. But it's also, we're forming a very small part in trying to stabilise Libya, um, prevent mass waves of migration, uh, uncontrolled migration coming uh, to us, which we've been experiencing as putting huge pressure on us, um, preventing like further kind of contamination in the region of, you know, further warfare, which has just all sorts of knock-on um, um, consequences for, for the EU. So that's another reason why you want some sort of expeditionary military ability. So it's not just about, you know, like Stalin said, how many divisions does the Pope have? Exactly, it's not, it's not yeah. just about having divisions. It's but, more complicated but, but than But can I just come back to the, in defence of that point of view of what we need a military for? Well, yeah, we are lucky enough to be on the edge of Europe, an island off an island, as, as, as it's sometimes called. And uh, it's uh, we have gotten away with it so far. Uh, T.K. Whitaker kind of uh, put it quite succinctly in a talk to uh, young officers, I think back in the 80s, um, uh, when he said Ireland is like an uninsured driver uh, with no tax and no insurance. Um, but it's gotten away with it, you know. So, you know, there's a certain... You're weighing it up, you know. It's an, it's maybe a better analogy for the modern time would be a young person, say someone in their 20s who doesn't have health insurance. They're probably going to get away with it. They have more money for rent or food or going out and having a good time. We've taken money that we might have invested in defence, invested it in other areas, in infrastructure. So there's a payoff, you know. And yeah, it should be asked, why not take advantage of the fact that we are, we are on the edge of Europe, we're not a target, we're not an enemy really for anyone. I want to take you back to the timeline of the book for a sec because we come out of the 60s and into the 70s and of course the, the single most important 
part of that is, and you mentioned an EU mission there earlier on, is that Ireland joins the then European Economic Community in 1973. And from the very start, a lot of the opposition to people in Ireland to joining the, the EEC as it was, was the implication that it was going to ultimately develop into some kind of military alliance of some sort. And that has continued to be an ongoing debate in the 50 years since. Well, I'd argue, so from the start, Irish politicians, uh, Lamas included, were fairly comfortable with the idea of it one day developing into a military alliance and basically saw it as a fait accompli that it, this is going to be the end point of uh, European integration, that we would have a NATO-style alliance or maybe even... There a was a kind of an anti-imperialist critique from the left, I could say. There say, was. Which, which didn't want to see that happen. There was, but it was muted. Um, and I, maybe because this was something that was only going to happen decades in the future as the final end goal of European integration, that was kind of uh, f down the list of their objections to Europe. The other... The other linked uh, objection, the main objection was loss of sovereignty. Um, and it's only really kind of as uh, later in the 70s and the 80s that the neutrality thing uh, with the rise of, you know, opposition to the Vietnam War, the rise of the anti-nuclear uh, weapons movement, um, then you get the, the kind of rise of a, a neutrality movement and it becomes not only kind of a core principle of left-wing parties, but uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil start to talk about it a lot more as well. Why do you think that happened? I don't know. It's It was an interesting shift. But as I said, before that, neutrality just wasn't really discussed in Ireland. You know, if someone, if you said someone is Ireland neutral, they'd probably say yes. But no one really talked about our traditional neutrality or, or, or our uh, military neutrality. And but it became an increasingly... Um, major bone of contention in some of the constitutional referendums, the treaties, um, Lisbon and Nice. Uh, it, it was very, very much at, at the top of the agenda, and in fact was a contributory factor to the uh, sometimes to the loss of those referendums. Absolutely, it was a, it was a, it was a major point of discussion during those referendums, but much less of a point of discussion in the earlier, uh, arguably more important referendums like Maastricht and the Single European Act, uh, where it did come up and we did have like debates about it, but it was again far down the list, you know, behind taxation. And common agricultural policy, etc., etc. So Nice first, uh, you know, did have some, you know, this did set up mil EU military structures that was seen as the tin end of the wedge towards a common European defence pact. Um, and then Lisbon kind of built on that, although Lisbon, you know, was kind of talked up to have do more than it already than it did because a lot of those structures were already in place um, and Lisbon was just kind of putting them on a more formal footing. Uh, but yeah, neutrality was a, a, a major point in the rejection of Lisbon. But again, uh, uh, polling in this newspaper afterwards found it was down the list behind several others such as immigration, tax, uh, sovereignty. Uh, so it was there, but not as big as it might be remembered today. And then in parallel with the developments in the EU and closer integration within the EU, of course, lots of other things are happening around the world, including the end of the Cold War, not uh, not insignificantly. And then a little bit over 10 years after that, the uh, the United States uh, invasion of Iraq uh, and its war in Afghanistan, both of which, you know, were causes for major dissension in Ireland. And I think right up until today, the question of what should or should not go through Shannon Airport is a is a political issue. Yeah, and Shannon, if there's one place in Ireland that kind of sums up our kind of ambivalent attitude to, to neutrality, it's, it's Shannon Airport. Most people associate, in that sense, associated with uh, 
the invasion of Iraq and to a lesser extent the invasion of Afghanistan in the early 2000s. But we've been letting the Americans use uh, the Shannon Airport long before that for military purposes. Uh, we let them use it for bombing of Kosovo. Uh, we let them use it for the first Gulf War. And there was very little controversy about that. There was no one, well, there was very few uh, people getting up in the doll. There was very few people trying to climb in over the fence in Shannon and trying to carry out inspections. Or, one argument might be that the first Gulf War was supported by the United Nations, um, which makes a big difference. Yeah, 100%. And, and also the first, uh, so the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, mm. uh, it's controversial, but many people did say that is supported by a UN resolution. So it was okay for us to allow Shannon uh, to be used in that way. That's very, very arguable. Uh, but Iraq uh, emphatically wasn't supported by a UN resolution. And yet we still allowed them to move masses amounts of troops and weapons uh, through, through, through Shannon. And by the matter of, uh, as a matter of policy, didn't carry out any inspections. So that is, I would say, one of the low points of any claim to neutrality. And I uh, know uh, a UN resolution later did come in, you know, to kind of rebuild in Iraq or whatever. But the troops coming through Shannon were carrying M16s, not shovels, you know. So we were still facilitating a, a war. So from what I understand from what you're saying, we've kind of got away with a policy of hypocrisy and blind eye turning and underinvestment over the years. But we are now at another inflection point in the history of the relationship between sovereign states in this part of the world, in, in, in Europe in particular, and the position of the EU since the invasion of, of Ukraine last year. And that has seen really probably the most significant developments since since the end of the Cold War with two of Europe's um, most significant neutral countries um, not neutral anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Sweden is still trying to, to, to join NATO, but it does seem to be, you know, it is going to happen. Finland are already in. Uh, and when I f first started writing this book, Russia just launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And since then, we've seen a massive shift in Irish neutrality, arguably the biggest shift in, in well, I suppose you could correctly say since World War Two, but um, maybe others would disagree. Um, and there's two main, well, several main reasons for that. We are funding uh, a, a belligerent nation's uh, military operation through this European Peace Fund. The last I checked, it was about 60 million we've given so far. I, I, it's probably far more than that now. Um, and this is our share per head of population of this. And in theory, that is what, non-military or at least non-lethal Non-lethal military what does that mean? So that means we are funding, we're giving them fuel. Uh, and we're giving them body armor. We're giving them medical kits. Uh, but so we are. We will put petrol in their tanks, um, but we won't give them bullets for the tanks, which seems a bit of a fudge to me. But there you go. And we have now agreed to uh, train. Uh, you, and we are indeed in the process of training uh, Ukrainian uh, troops uh, to to expel the Russians. And again, it's a little bit of a fudge because while other countries are training them to essentially to kill, we are training them to in demining, ordnance disposal, um, disposing of IEDs, that sort of thing. We're probably going to train them in things like combat medicine as well. I, I, again, I'd say it's a little bit of a fudge because if you want to take a town, say, you're going to have to get up all the enemy's minds as well. So it does serve a humanitarian function, but also serves a, a, a explicitly so military function. So in terms function. of the way the Irish, the, the, the Irish government is navigating its way through this, is the reason it's doing it this way, because is that a purely political reason or is it because it's constrained by current Irish law? 
would not there be no constraint in law. You know, there would be constraint in us uh, sending uh, troops uh, abroad. Uh, you know, the, the, the famous because of the triple, lock. the triple lock. Maybe uh, you could explain what the triple lock is. So the triple lock is uh, it's more a formula of words uh, than a, 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 um, a, an actual separate piece of legislation, but it basically states that. Um, if we want to send more than 12 armed troops abroad, uh, we have to get permission from the Dáil, the government, and a UN mandate. And a UN mandate essentially means a mandate from the UN Security Council. And the reason it's controversial or problematic or why the government are trying to get rid of it is the European uh, Security Council has five permanent members, each of whom enjoy a veto on any kind of mission. That's the US, France, China, Russia, the UK. And, and the How UK. could you forget the UK? <laughs> the UK. So that basically means that they can decide our foreign policy to a certain extent. They can decide, say the Ukraine war ends uh, hopefully soon and we want to send a peacekeeping force in there. But Russia could say no. Uh, you know, and, and so they can decide our own domestic, our, uh, sorry, our domestic foreign policy is a <laughs> contradiction, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, but the point really is that because of the composition of the Security Council, which isn't going to change any time soon, and the, the effective veto, in this instance, particularly of the Russians, but you know, possibly in some situations of the Chinese as well, or indeed any of them, well, yeah, you know, the it just means that, British, that yeah, the Irish knows? government's hands are tied behind its back. Really. Yeah, yeah, and we are in an era of a kind of. Um, kind of a new Cold War, so to speak. Mm. Uh, we, we did have a kind of a, a period... Except it's a hot war. Or, well, it's a hot war, yeah. yes, in, in Ukraine. Uh, we did have, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we had a period where Russia was cooperating with the West, so the veto wasn't really being used that much, and we had a lot of UN missions launched. We haven't had a UN mission launched since 2014, I think. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, it's deadlocked. So that's why Ireland wants to be involved in that, that space. But... Uh, you can easily see as how we would be prevented in getting involved in things like uh, Ukraine. Now, some people listening to this, and in fact, many people, to judge by opinion polls, are extremely attached to the idea of Irish neutrality. Call it traditional, call it whatever you want. They think it's served the country well. Um, Irish soldiers haven't died in their thousands on foreign fields in the search of some military adventure from some imperial power. Um, and that hasn't happened. So on, the, on pure outcomes, that has been a success. And they would also, I think, in some cases argue that it gives Ireland a moral authority in parts of the world that it wouldn't have if we were part of a Western alliance, for example. And some of those people, I'm sure, feel that that position is being threatened at the moment, that the kind of the, the things that are going on in NATO, the, the accession of Finland and possibly of Sweden, the kind of debates which have started to be happening, including in, in your own book, are part of a perhaps a kind of a creeping attempt to, to whittle away Irish neutrality. Yeah, I've, I have a degree of sympathy for that view because things are shifting and changing. Um, um, so, like, things are obviously changing on the global stage. And for the first time, there is kind of a substantial debate in Ireland about what it means to be neutral, if it's moral to be neutral, um, and, 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 and what neutrality actually means. Um, you know, on... People on the left and on the right actually have accused the government of trying to bounce us into NATO. They see any kind of talk of increased cooperation with NATO, such as protecting our subsea cables off the West Coast or in the area of cyber defence as kind of the tin end of the wedge of, you know, become full NATO members. I don't see that happening. Honestly, you know, I've interviewed a lot of diplomats, a lot of military figures, leaders of all the parties, um, and you know, they've they've all said there's there's little appetite in that world to join NATO. Um, even off the record, you know, people genuinely don't want to join NATO. They don't want that headache. Um, they want to have a freedom of 
that we can get involved in things if we want to get involved in them, such as like we're doing in Ukraine. We could mm. we could opt to just send humanitarian assistance to Ukraine or not send anything at all, but we are going that extra step. I think most people probably, I, I, I don't, haven't seen an exact, a poll examine that exact question, but I think most people would be in favour of what we are doing in, for Ukraine right now. Um, and is there a desire on the part of current members of NATO, many of whom are kind of close allies of ours within the within the EU as well, like what, you know, what do they think of Ireland's traditional neutrality? To the extent that they think of it at all, they're fine with it. You know, uh, if there was a third world war, Ireland would join a Western alliance. You know, they know that. We know that. You know, if we were threatened, if 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 if, if there was a way of staying out of it, we would. But we wouldn't be able to in it, in in that kind of war. Um, in terms of like the less the kind of. The, the one step or several steps below that. We do cooperate with them. They're happy with the level of cooperation. Um, you know, I interviewed uh, the head of NATO, uh, Jens, there, and, uh, you know, he was very diplomatic and he, he said Ireland would, you know, would be welcome in NATO, but it's completely up to them. There hasn't been pressure either on a European level or a NATO level for us to join the alliance. None that I've detected. And anyway. is there a sense then in Ireland? I'm sure there is a sense. In fact, I think I've probably seen it from people who have been members of the of the armed forces, of the defence forces, and who feel that there's something humiliating about this kind of policy. I'm not sure what I make of this myself, but just a sense that the kind of the gratuitous underinvestment or non-investment over over decades. You hear things about the rates of pay that mm. soldiers are paid, the kind of their standards of living, the general ramshackle nature of the whole thing that this is no way for a grown up country to be behaving like a young fellow who's driving a car without insurance yeah, yeah there is there's an grave embarrassment there you know these are people who are very very proud to wear the uniform um, people with a deep love for the for the uh, defence forces um, but who have seen it being hollowed out by you know successive governments I mean you could argue every government since the foundation of the state has uh, or since at least the end of the civil war the defence forces has been an afterthought and sometimes that's on purpose because they're worried in the early days of you know mutiny but now it's just a matter of government policy it's the fact that we have been able to get away with it with not investing in defence and what it means is you have a defence forces which can't monitor its own skies yeah I mean and just, just to agree with that I mean you broke that that story which is in the book you know um, um, a, a few weeks ago and I would have thought it'd be particularly um People who feel most strongly at all of all about Irish sovereignty and the, the and the Irish state would be kind of most horrified by the fact that we essentially have a kind of a secret agreement with the British to guard our skies. Yeah, um, I, I think that's going to be a really interesting question for Sinn Féin. Uh, if it gets into power, uh, you know, what's it going to do about that? Will it publish this agreement, for example? Will it cancel this agreement? Will it seek to put it on a more formal footing with all approval, you know, and what would that do to it for its base? Or will it say, OK, well, let's invest in fighter jets? I mean, Mary Lou McDonald has emphatically said, no, we're not going to do that. So, you know, what are the other options? Um, uh, so, yeah, that'll be a big question for them. I'm also curious to see if we actually will they will release details of that deal. I know within the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, which is the lead agency on this, you know, amongst kind of even senior civil servants, there's a desire to get this out in the open and just say, yeah, we rely on the Brits in certain limited circumstances in an, uh, an emergency that will hopefully never happen. We will be relying on the Brits. But there's, you know, others in government who are saying, no, this has to be kept secret. And there is a 
public consultation process which is about to take place interestingly not a citizens assembly which mm. has been we've had citizens assemblies on all kinds of things mm. uh, arguably some of them not as important as this um, so I don't know why what the political thinking was behind that but it is going to happen and what's going to happen at that do you have a sense of that? Yeah I think so I've had a look I'm actually moderating one of the, the, the panels in that uh, and it's going to be some it's going to be diplomats academics um, uh, peace campaigners um it's going to be a talking shop, really, with contributions from the floor. Citizens' Assembly light. It's going to be four days, Dublin, Cork, two in Dublin uh, and Cork and Galway. And then the, the independent chair, uh, Louise Richardson, is going to prepare a report for government, which will inform government policy, but it won't direct government policy. So the government won't be under any pressure to, say, <laughs> join NATO or put neutrality in the constitution, anything like that. It re- it's really... For me, Al Martin, I think it's a way if he wants to generate some more conversation in this area. I think he, uh, I know he said that he really wants to get rid of the triple lock. This might provide him some political cover to get rid of the triple lock. If you know this report says the triple lock isn't doesn't serve Ireland's uh, uh, needs, um, I think so that, that that's the key the key item on the agenda for Irish government at the moment, is it? Is the, the triple, triple lock. lock in that yeah. space, mm. yeah. That's the only big change. Aside from increasing defence spending, which is you know going to take place over the course of several years, um, the rest is tinkering around the edges. The getting rid of the triple lock is, is the only big move they're considering right now. Mm. We'll leave it there. Is Ireland Neutral by Conor Gallagher is published by Gill Books. It's available in all good bookshops and probably bad bookshops as well. Um, thanks very much to Connor for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, John Casey. Uh, JJ Vernon was on the decks. We'll be back very soon with our wrap of the week on Friday. Until then, thanks very much indeed for listening.